Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of the year. We thank you when our attention and our focus is directed uh, towards the birth of your Son. Lord, we thank you for everything that that means. Most importantly, Lord, we thank you for the redemption that that means. Not only of our salvation and our restoration to you, but also the redemption of every single part of our lives. May you bring healing, cleansing, forgiveness, and and redemption to every part of our lives as we seek to open those to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1937, Pablo Picasso painted this work called Guernica uh, to capture the suffering that occurred in the northern Spanish town uh, uh, by that same name. In 1936, a civil war broke out in Spain against the Democratic Republic, uh, between the, the Democratic Republicans and the fascist movement led by General Francisco Franco. Franco re- requested help from Adolf Hitler and his massive German Air Force to attack the Republican stronghold of Guernica. And on April 26, 1937, that aerial bombing commenced for over three hours. Because most of the men were away from this town fighting on behalf of the Republicans at the time of the bombing, only women and children remained in the town. Reports indicated that it was market day on the day of the bombing, so as most of the town's women and children were congregated in the center of the city, that's where the bombers targeted. The aftermath was devastating. 100,000 pounds of explosives were dropped on the city, destroying 70% of the buildings, either from explosions or fire. Following the bombers, 20 fighter planes machine gunned survivors who were hiding out in the surrounding fields, all for a town that was not militarily strategic to uh, the cause. A third of Guernica's population, about 1,600 civilians, mostly women and children, were annihilated that day. Upon hearing the news of this catastrophic disaster, Picasso, while living in Paris, was Spanish himself, painted Guernica to show the brutality of what had happened in his homeland, and the painting was displayed at the 1937 World's Fair in Paris. Purposely made to shock its viewers, the Guernica work is huge, standing at 11 feet tall and extending 25 feet in width, forcing the viewer to feel like they are in the middle of the atrocities. In the 1940s, when Paris became occupied by the Nazis, a German officer visited Picasso in his Parisian studio, and upon seeing a photograph of the painting of Guernica in Picasso's studio, asked Picasso, did you do that? In response, Picasso replied, no, you did. Great human suffering is so interwoven into the existence of humanity that it's very difficult to imagine a world without it. Even the beautiful Christmas story describing the birth of our Savior does not end with the animals in the barn quietly looking on as Mary and Joseph lovingly tend to their newborn son. Rather, it ends with extreme suffering when Herod the Great commissions the slaughter of every baby boy to and under within his jurisdiction. Today's not going to be a very, I'm warning you, today's not going to be a very light-hearted subject at all, but one we must as believers grapple with, for fluff does not begin to give hope in the midst of such unspeakable suffering in our lives. 
Suffering is an all too real, major part of our lives. How do we begin to wrestle with it and actually find hope in the midst of it? The message today will only scratch the surface of the deep well we call suffering, but it will hopefully give us the basics of our hope in Christ. What makes Christmas so beautiful? First point that we come to in our passage this morning is the context, what Paul is writing into. Paul starts out this section with words dripping with irony. So we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians 4. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor for help. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to start out with verse 8. And we read, You are already filled. You, are, you already became rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. According to one biblical scholar, within this context, Paul is addressing the root of pride that everything he has rebuked towards them stems from. Apparently, the Corinthians thought that since they were superior to everyone else, they did not have to go through what everyone else goes through, namely suffering. They thought they were above that. They didn't have to deal with that. They thought that they already could just be rid of the suffering part and just enjoy all the good spiritual things their relationship with Almighty God afforded them. They thought they could simply never be in want, never feel broken, and always feel like a king without the true apostolic teaching about what real life with Jesus actually consisted of. That is not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear all the things they were doing well and all the things that, they were, that, that were nice and fluffy about a walk with Jesus. Sadly, too many churches today disconnect anything difficult and hard about the Christian life and only focus on promoting the nice and fluffy things about a life with Jesus. But that simply does not cut it, as we're all very well aware of especially when it comes to suffering in that life with Jesus. Paul even tongue-in-cheek writes, I wish you had become kings and only had the good things of life to experience and enjoy. You want to know why? Because then that would mean that I also could just experience and enjoy the good things of life. You see the irony that's dripping with those words. That certainly would be nice, huh? That as soon as we answered the stirring of the Holy Spirit within us to trust Jesus for our salvation from sin and we were restored to our good and perfect Father, that magically all the bad and sufferable things we could experience just disappeared. I've, heard several uh, I've told several people when upon their salvation experience, they thought that this was how things were going to be, that things were just going to be nice and good, and then all of a sudden, it seemed like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and they wondered what happened. And I tell them, and this is why I tell everyone who becomes a new believer, do not be surprised when things start to go wrong right off the bat, right when you commit your life to Jesus. Why? Because while the angels are rejoicing in heaven over a new child coming to God, someone else is irate. And who do you think our enemy is going to go after with everything he has? Jesus never promises a good and suffering free life after we put our faith in him. You know what he does promise? This is what he does promise. You will all be hated 
by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. This is what he does promise. We don't endure to the end all by ourselves. If that was up to us, we would have no hope. Amen? Rather, it's the Holy Spirit who puts the seal on us for our eternal hope, and it's He who protects and grows our faith to the end. But that doesn't in any way negate the first part of what Jesus promises. There will always be persecution. There will always be suffering, not in spite of our faith, but because of our faith. Suffering does not mean that God does not love us anymore. To the contrary, the Apostle James flat out tells us to count every sufferable experience as a joyful experience. How in the world could James say that knowing full well that not too long before penning those words, all his Jewish Christian brothers and sisters were persecuted to the point of being driven from Jerusalem and forced to start new lives elsewhere. And yet he can still write those words? This is why. Dear brothers and sisters, even when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance now has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Suffering is the main way that God grows us. Seems a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Why does God do that? That seems incredibly unfair and even spiteful to his children, that that's the way that he grows us. But in reality, God using suffering in our lives as the main way he deepens our faith is a beautiful illustration of his redemption. How? God knew how sin would tear apart the world and individual lives, and he knew that because he's the one who predetermined it to be that way. This is one of those hidden wisdom areas that we talked about not too long ago for why God chose to predetermine evil to come into the world. God did not create evil, nor does he delight in evil, but for reasons only known to himself, he predetermined that evil would enter the world through his creation. This does not come anywhere near to a full explanation of this hidden wisdom, but one small reason for this is to display his redemption in our individual lives and in the world. How can I say this in the midst of such tragedy that befalls us? God could have predetermined that evil would enter the world and left it at that. Put a period right there. In that case, whatever evil, horrific, and heartbreaking events that come into our lives would merely be a result of this evil and broken world and we just have to deal with it. But God's love and redemption in Christ goes far beyond that. Instead, God chooses to redeem the traumatic, evil, and tragic events of our lives. Paul has already told the Corinthians, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and what? Redemption. Redemption. 
And Jesus himself said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word for abundantly does not mean good in the way that we think of good. Rather, it means beyond what is anticipated or expected. We might expect tragedy to be pointless and just a result of the way this evil and broken world works, but Jesus came to redeem every single event in our lives that on their own would destroy us. At the very least, those tragedies are not pointless. They all have a purpose, and one of those purposes is a redemption of those tragedies as means for growth. God reveals himself to us in such a way that we would not experience without that suffering, and God grows and deepens our faith in him through that. And that way, suffering is both a beautiful illustration of God's redemption in our lives and the major way that God grows us as his children. And as each experience of suffering in our lives is redeemed for our spiritual growth, it's done by God with the goal that we may be perfect and complete, needing nothing. In short, our suffering is not who we are, and our suffering is not what defines us. Rather, what our suffering is, is a source for redemption. Not only is it a source of redemption in our individual lives, but as Paul saw it as a source of redemption and the very basis of of salvation towards those Paul was called to share the gospel with. So the first point that we had was the context, and secondly, we have the calling. Paul knew suffering as a means of testimony to share the gospel all too well. Verse 9, For I think God has exhibited us apostles... Last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The apostles especially, Paul knew, were called to be a display of unshakable faith in the face of extreme pain, humiliation, torture, death, for nothing other than their declaration and preaching of their faith. Christians in the land of the former Soviet Union claimed that the Apostle Andrew was the first to bring them the gospel, and he was later crucified in modern-day Turkey. Thomas is said by tradition to be the first to preach the gospel as far east as India and was later executed by, by the death of being run through with spears by four soldiers. Matthew primarily ministered in Ethiopia, where it's reported he was stabbed to death for his faith. Bartholomew is said to have been a missionary with Thomas to India, back to Armenia, Ethiopia, and southern Arabia. There are differing accounts as to how he was martyred, but we know that he was killed. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned and clubbed to death for his faith. Simon the Zealot is alleged to have ministered in Persia, where he was put to death for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the apostle that was chosen by Lot to replace Judas Iscariot, is said to have gone to Syria with Andrew and put to death by burning. John, the son of Zebedee, was the only one not to be executed, but was banished from everyone he held dear to the criminal island of Patmos, where he received the revelations recorded for us in the book of Revelation. 
Peter was crucified upside down because he did not want to die the same way his Lord and Savior had. And Paul, the last of the apostles, was beheaded during the same time as Peter and in the same city of Rome. Each of these apostles was truly a spectacle displayed before not only humans but before the angels who had no concept of God's grace and salvation and especially of God's grace in the face of such demoralizing and fearful situations. In verse 10, Paul again ironically puts forth the difference between how Paul and the other apostles saw themselves and how the prideful and self-centered Corinthians saw themselves. Verse 10, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. If the Corinthians thought there was great honor in the prideful things they were doing and how they saw themselves, and that was the basis for honor in God's eyes, how in the world did God see these men who answered the call to be put on grotesque display in death what their faith really looked like? How do you think God was supposed to view those people? I think that would be enough to shut anyone up, don't you? You could just sense the silence and discomfort that would have fallen over the Corinthian church when this letter was read to them the first time. Paul would go on to say in verse 14 that he's not writing these things to shame them, but here there was a bit of a shock factor to kind of shake them up a little bit. Paul's point was to, again, similar to what we looked at last week, was to call out the false humility that some in the Corinthian church were indulging and point out what true humility looked like. And what did true humility look like? Suffering for Christ's sake. Paul expounded upon this in the following verses, 11 through 13. To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's a pretty graphic description of what suffering for Christ's sake really looks like. Isn't it? And therefore the fulfillment of true humility. In verse 11, Paul lists out what he, the other apostles, and the other evangelists around the world had to go through on a daily basis for the sake of the message they brought with them. It was not a glamorous calling. It was the most difficult thing that God could call anyone to do with their lives. It was the best description of humility because it's exactly what Jesus had already gone through. You notice all those things that Paul wrote in verse 11, you could easily apply them to Jesus' life also. Any kindness, any provision, any relief Paul saw was purely God's grace in their lives. The opposite was the daily expectation and experience. That's what they expected to happen. I can't think of any better of an explanation of humility. Humility knows that any good thing we have or experience or any relief from pain is a gift from God. Humility knows that these gifts are given to us for the time period that God wants to give them to us, for the purpose that God has for them. 
They are not given to us for our own plans, goals, and purposes. They are given to us for God's plan, goals, purposes, and glory. Paul moves on from his graphic and the truest explanation of humility in suffering in verses 11 through the beginning part of verse 12 to his explanation of what a humble response to suffering looks like in the second part of verse 12 and into verse 13. Look at each of those responses. They are absolutely incredible, aren't they? When Paul is reviled and ridiculed and hated and misunderstood and treated unfairly for his faith, what is his response? He blesses those committing those things towards him. He prays to God that God would bless them. That's incredible, isn't it? Perhaps through those blessings, those reviling would see the goodness of the God that they're really persecuting. When that reviling and ridicule turns into actual physical persecution, Paul endures. He didn't fight back. He endured it because he recognized what James has already told us, that the endurance and and bearing that he did was crucial to his own faith growth. In that way, the persecution and the bearing of that persecution were welcomed in his life. This last one blew my mind when I read it. When Paul was slandered, he conciliated or he comforted the one doing the slandering. That is beyond us, isn't it? When Paul's whole reputation as a person, even among so-called believers, was slandered and his name was dragged through the mud, what was his response to comfort the one or ones doing it? That is not our first reaction or desire, is it? But that's why that form of suffering illustrates what true humility really looks like as well. In that way, humility through suffering is setting aside the emotional pain and still being Jesus to that person, sharing his love and comfort, and through that, sharing his message of salvation. Being met with comfort will not be what the other person expects, and it can be a perfect opportunity for the gospel. Even as the Corinthians had an opinion of themselves that most certainly did not match up with Jesus' definition of humility, Paul drove his point about humility home. In reality, there was no earthly honor in the life of Jesus and the life of the apostles to which we should seek to emulate. They were the scum and dregs of the earth. The word for scum in the New Testament is is only used here. It was meant to describe that scummy residue on things like used dishes that need to be washed. Have you ever put off washing dishes for at least a day? Come on, everybody's hand should be raised here. That's okay. We've all done it. Those dishes aren't very fun to wash when they've been sitting around, are they? No. Stuff's all caked on, and you have to work twice as hard than you would have had before, and nothing is more hated in that moment. That is one of the descriptions that Paul gives about how the world views him. The second is what is translated here as the dregs. 
It's related to the word used for scum, but it's the scum after it's already been scraped off. It's one of the most disgusting things of that time period. But beyond that, the way this word is used here, as is pointed out by one biblical scholar, is the way it was used by other Greek writers. According to other Greek lexicographers, which is a fancy word for those who assign definition for words, and it's related to our word lexicon, this word is used by the Athenians to describe a criminal that they would throw into the sea once a year, believing that that would help them avert different calamities that coming year. And that way, that man was scraped off society and sacrificed for the rest of Athens. Do you see the parallel that Paul is drawing to his place in the world? In verse 13, by using the same exact word in connection with himself. In Jesus' humility, Paul saw himself as the sacrifice being tossed to the wolves of the world so that one more person could hear Jesus' message of salvation. He completely saw his life as not his own, but one in complete service to his king, with his only identity and source of boastfulness as Jesus. Likewise, there is nothing beautiful or glamorous about the believer's earthly life, for it should be lived in seeking complete humility as a representative of Jesus. Suffering takes many different forms in our lives. It takes the form of persecution and suffering for our faith. It takes the form of personal loss and tragedy. It takes the form of physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual pain. No matter what form it takes, as we've seen in our passage this morning, the tragedy that we experience in our personal lives is a testimony for God's grace and redemption that God then uses to call others to put their faith in Him. Suffering will always be a part of our earthly lives of humility because we are called to identify with Jesus' humility and that humility manifested in suffering. Suffering forces us to humbly see that our lives are not our own, but they're God's to fulfill his plan for each one of us. That, as Jesus has already promised, will include suffering, not only because of our faith, but also as a source of redemption, revelation, and growth. One of the most beautiful aspects of our earthly life is God's redemption of every area of our lives, even and especially the tragic, traumatic, and unspeakably painful parts of our lives. Those things that have happened to us are not pointless. They are not pointless. They are purposeful. They are purposeful to God revealing more of his love to us. They, were, they are purposeful to God deepening and growing our faith. They are purposeful to God using them in opportunities uh, to, for us to give testimony of his redemption. Sometimes God's purposes will not be clear. That's just the reality of things. Sometimes there will be questions that will always remain. That, again, that will be the reality of things. Sometimes God's purposes will not be clear until we are fully united with him in the future. But we always know this, that there is redemption and there is purpose for everything that happens in our lives. God is always working on us 
And he is creating us into a beautiful work of art. Suffering, as we've seen, is an inextricable part of that process. But even in the midst of that process, this is what we can rest in. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that even in the midst of our suffering, we know there is purpose, and we know there is love, and we know there is redemption. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to our lives. I pray that you would help us to see that even in the tragic and traumatic experiences of our life, you are still there. You are still redeeming them. You are still healing them. You are still loving us, and you are still walking right beside us through every experience in our lives. We thank you that you did not just predetermine that evil will enter the world and just leave it at that, but Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of that, you walk right alongside of us through every single experience, redeeming them for our growth and using them as a testimony that we can share with somebody else to bring one more person into the kingdom. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.